0: Welcome
1: to the
2: Behavioral Groups Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply that to work and life. And this week, we got to talk with James Brewer,
0: Director of Incentive Compensation for Eli Lilly, one of the largest pharmaceuticals in the world. Full disclosure, James and I go back a number of years, and I have done a number of consulting projects with him, co-presented at a few conferences, and consider him to be a good friend. Uh, and as typical, our conversation uh, covered
2: a lot of different Topics. Well, some of the topics we covered uh, started off with a lightning round of quick questions. Uh, the, my favorite part is the Michelangelo versus Monet uh, thing. <laughs> we discussed the behavioral uh, IC audit, the incentive compensation audit that Curtin and James did a number of years ago, and about how asking people what they want, particularly when it comes to pay and rewards – Probably isn't the best idea.
0: Yeah, that say-do gap that keeps popping up in our conversations with a variety of different interviews. Uh, We also talked about Lily's work with Danny Ariely and uh, some fun insights into that, as well as we spent a great deal of time talking about the four-drive model of employee
2: motivation and how that can be applied at work. Yeah, that was terrific. Uh, Once again, we had some really good discussion after the formal session ended and talked about how do you know something worked and what outcomes really matter. And
0: so listen up. Uh, We hope you enjoy this Behavioral Grooves podcast with James Brewer. Well, James Brewer, welcome to the Behavior Groups podcast. Uh, we are excited to have you here. So, a couple quick questions. Very first off, speed round to start this uh,
2: podcast off. Are you a cat or dog person? Dog. Monet or
1: Michelangelo? Monet. Nature versus nurture? Nurture.
0: Nurture, all right, okay. all right. So, Monet, now that I would not have picked you for a Monet guy. Now, yes. why, why,
1: yes. Monet? Oh, I just like the color variations. Um, it was something that always, believe it or not, it was um, one of those classes. Um, art, art history, actually. Um, I probably spent more time. It was one I walked into the class thinking, oh, she's just check the box. I walked out going. I could have majored in that.
2: <laughs> now, I have not,
1: I don't have an. I don't have an artistic or a musical bone in my body. But I absolutely can spend hours in an art museum, or I can in a concert hall, and it can be a w- range of wide music. In um, fact, I find myself uh, sometimes wasting time watching some of these uh, auditions when I see these these this talent pop on people that don't know they're good singers or oh, artists yeah. or, or, or co- comedians or whatever. I just like the, what people can do and, and especially things that are unique. Yeah. So, so
0: James, I think that's, uh, that was our fun little pop around, get us, get us going here, get some energy onto the, the deal. But, um, you know, this is a this is a podcast about behavioral science, and I know we have done a lot of work together past seven, eight years, and uh, you have brought <coughs> behavioral science into the work that you do. But I just want to start go back and think about. Can you tell us a little bit? How did you get interested in behavioral science or behavioral economics, as we used to call it when we first started working together?
1: Well, the simple answer is I needed a better way to communicate. Okay. We had complex incentive compensation programs at Eli Lilly, and um, we were doing perfunctory communications. Do this, get that. Um, I was new to the role. I looked at that. And while we were checking the box of getting something out, um, it wasn't what I would call engaging. And okay. so I knew there had to be a better communication. And I remember coming up in the first time we met, it was all focused on how do we better communicate? Mm-hmm. You quickly within one or two hours said, we got that covered. We can help with that. But I want to introduce you to something broader. And that was the first exposure. Now, <clears throat> when I started, I think you'd had asked, had I heard much about behavioral economics or behavioral science and, um, I have to tell you, I don't think I've ever told you this behind, uh, what was going on in my mind, um, was, uh, this sounds like behavior modification. <laughs> I I'm not sure I'm going to like this. Because I come from a, a biology background and behavior modification with animals and stuff feels yeah. really controlling and manipulative. And so there was, as you're walking through the discussion, I'm like, okay, this is sort of people making choices that's not behavior modification unless there's electric prod and you weren't introducing electric prodding to it. So, no, so that, it's, that's it's a later really time. focused on better communication. And, it, and at first we don't realize how much, how we communicate and what we communicate when we communicate has, can have a science behind it. And that's really where I saw the connection between the two. And I felt like, and I'm still feeling like I'm in a, in a, a Uh, Water uh, uh, fire hose drinking this because it has such breadth of impact and um, applications.
0: Well, I remember in our first conversations that one of the reasons actually that we even started talking about behavioral economics and different things at that time is that uh, some of the executives at Eli Lilly had read Dan Pink's book Drive uh, and had bought into that. And I had, I, uh, I know we had talked about that in, in some early conversations. And I said, you know, I, I liked that book just from the perspective that it got people thinking beyond just compensation, that there are other things that motivate. And I think that resonated with Resigna- Resin- Re- resonate, resonated resonated, resonated <laughs> not resonated. Um, yeah, I, I need a beer or something before I do these, uh, resonated with you. So uh, help us understand how behavior, how you use behavioral science and behavioral economics in your work and how did the executives, I'm kind of mashing a couple of our questions together here, how did the executives uh, buy into that or what, what was needed for that?
1: Yeah, to your right, the, the Daniel Pink uh it, it predated me by about twelve to eighteen months, and it had gone through um, sort of a. One of our executive VPs, um, Michelle, had um, read behavioral economics. Had her lead team, um, they were applying different constructs, not so much in their incentive design, but really they were doing it in um, in their leadership interactions. Um, that was that was the first time I'd read. Uh, something, that, And I think during that first introduction when we were talking, I had referenced it, and, and, and I remember you saying that's a good start. Yeah. And, and I thought, well, that's interesting because I read a book on it. Therefore, it was the end all to be all. So <laughs> done. Which is not mean, how that works, you mean, it was right? a good start. Um, yeah, and, and what happens in large corporations, at least Lilly, and I'm sure it's relevant elsewhere, is um, one VP is doing something, the others look over and think, well, that's interesting. And there was intrigue. Um, Now, we happen to have, uh, our president, uh, V. L. Lilly at the time had a background. His undergrad was in economics. And so he latched on and he was familiar with that work. Um, and I remember having a, literally a hallway conversation referencing it and saying, you know, this is intriguing work. And he, he was intrigued with the conversation. We ended up scheduling some time, and it was broader than uh, behavioral science dialogue, but that weaved itself into it. And I shared with him that I'm investigating and trying to understand how to apply it to our incentive compensation. This was following the conversation you and I had with Alex Azar, who happens now to be working um, up in Washington. And Alex um, uh, had a, a real keen eye forward and an interest. And as we continued, I want to say within the first 12 months um, through that dialogue, Alex wanted uh, to have a deeper dive with our senior leadership. And mm-hmm. So to the question, how did it occur? Yes, there was some nurturing that was going on um, with one VP working uh, with Daniel Book, uh, Daniel Pink's book. Um, Alex knew that that was scratching the surface because he had done a little more homework um, and wanted to go deeper. And we had that—I remember it was a Friday afternoon, four and a half-hour session—and the VPs were asked to come in. Many of them grumbling, saying, "Why do we have a four-hour meeting on a Friday afternoon?" Um, came out saying, "This is absolutely going to change the way we think about doing our business."
0: Yeah, I remember that. I remember that meeting. Tim was there as well. I mean, both yeah. of
1: you were. Both of you were present.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah and and I, and I remember uh, the level of engagement was very high that the the uh, the enthusiasm in questions and the way that they approached it was uh, was really um, inspiring because uh, it was well obviously- i
1: think i think the first i think the first thing that was so important to them was um, all of us had a business need now it may be uh, not clearly articulated, and each one of them might have had a slightly different variation on it, but it really came down to how do you increase productivity? And the interesting thing is there's lots of ways to do that. Um, What they saw, engagement, engaging employees is a significant way to increase productivity. And part of that is people get focused on the work, clear the clutter, get lasered in. And I think this became an additional lever to do just that. And as a senior leader, they were looking for ways to engage to ultimately drive productivity to the company. And yet when, you, when we state that, it sounds obvious. The question is, how do you do that?
0: Right. And I think it's interesting. And
1: many of them, I think the message you guys shared was you, you can offer people more money, but that may have diminishing returns.
0: Yeah. And that's yeah. one of the the interesting things mm-hmm. question I have for you, James is we've done a lot of work with um, I've done a lot of work with other organizations, and they don't seem for whatever reason that this message of applying behavioral science doesn't necessarily catch on at that senior executive level they they can't take the 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 science part and take it down to that business message that you talked about. Any, any ideas why you think uh, Lily was able to do that, and and they did it relatively quickly? Is it is it just the people that were in the room? Is it something that you did? Is it something that we did? What were what were some of those things that you think that allowed that to happen?
1: Well, um, I think there's probably there's a little bit of all of that, right? Okay. Um, so um, our current CEO, Dave Ricks, back in 2012. Um, actually predates that 2010, 2011, was present in the U.S. affiliate, um, and, and had actually introduced, um, what we called the service value chain. Okay. And it, and it really was work that came out of studying other companies that had engaged their employees to increase productivity. And we really simplified. There's some there's some really complex models that came out of Harvard and Disney has one and Zappos has them and some of the top performing organizations outside the biopharma uh, industry. We went to to look at how do they give wonderful customer experience. how do how do they get to that? Well, it came all the way back to the leader has to engage employee employee whilst the customer customer choices to drive business results. That's the simple construct of a value chain Mm
2: -hmm. It
1: comes back to the crux. How does a leader engage an employee? And so that question was stirring in our company and we didn't have good answers. I don't think we had certain mechanisms. We had, we had, uh, at that time we called it spotlight and we call it inspire. These are um, merchandise points that you can reward and recognize people in those badges and all that's good. I'm not, we'll discount that. But it seemed one dimensional, and there wasn 't a lot of depth to it. It had if this was really true, meaning leaders can engage employees, which then impact uh, customers. If that line connects, then we need to be much more thoughtful around how do you do that. You can only read so many leadership development books right and, and at some point they work or they don 't work, but there 's tactics that can be engaged. Um, or deployed systematically, um, outside of a, your, your indiscriminate leader, because leadership is really hard to do. Okay. And so at a senior leader level, they needed to institutionalize, at least within the first the sales organization, how do we incorporate incentive compensation, rewards and recognition? So not just the cash side, but the non-cash to drive better performance. Such, because the leadership is very indiscriminate, and, and we had three, four, five hundred sales leaders, you're not going to have consistency uh, across that many. But you could put a process in place, and that, I think, was the, the door that was open. Now, what we had to do is we had to actually connect those dots. Yeah, so to, James, to why? To show that this was something that could be systematically deployed to achieve the outcome that they were trying and desiring. Yeah, so
2: James, why was the sales organization chosen as the guinea pig, for lack of a better
1: term? It's the largest function in our organization. At that time, it was uh, just shy of 5,000 persons and had the highest operating expense behind it and had the largest revenue um, driving uh, component within our organization. So you're just looking at a functional area that was the largest marketing team, is one twentieth the size of the sales organization. So if you go into marketing, you can have a breadth of impact with the marketing and we've extended it into some of our patient adherence programs and things of that nature. But just from a functional area, um, that happens to be the largest area, uh, area. And it's also the most conducive from an incentive compensation because we had a high variability in the way that we established, uh, incentive compensations. We were much more flexible in that. As, that environment than we were in our bonus structure within uh, the other functional or the other um, business functions within the organization.
2: So, yeah. So could tell us a little bit about that. How did you start? What were the first things that you went after to start to apply these behavioral science principles uh, in the sales organization? What were the things that you started kicking off first?
1: First thing we did is look at our communication. In fact, that's what drove me up to Minneapolis was I didn't think we were communicating well um, now I, I quite frankly didn't walk in and say well I'd like to have business or, or um, um, behavioral economics or behavioral science applied to my communications I just wanted a more systematic approach to communication what yeah. I learned was walking away from that is yes we can make better slides or better PowerPoints or better um, um, apps or whatever the tool might be but behind the scenes why are you communicating in this manner? Why are you choosing to have certain items being repetitive? What are you highlighting? What are the options that are the different rewards? That was step one, communication. The second item we did was a true audit of what were all of our rewards. In fact, we had a very systematic audit of this. What were all the awards that we had available, both cash, non-cash, As well as recognitions, rewards, and recognition, what were the list of all of those, and where did we, and how, and and what levers were they pulling? What we found is over ninety-five, ninety-eight percent of all of those awards, and we probably had fifteen to eighteen different rewards and/or recognitions across the organization. Most of them were all pulling the same lever. And that was a desire to achieve, which is fine. It's a powerful motivator, but it's leaving a couple others really out there. And we weren't maximizing our opportunity. And so that audit demonstrated to us that we had a gap. The second, out of that audit, the second thing we did beyond just audit or or, um, um, categorizing it, we then went to our field and did a survey. And we said, well, what, what engages you? And of course, number one, everyone should be able to pull this out of the hat, and that is cash. Cash is king. Don't screw with our cash, right? And so we had to look at all these other things. We had we had um, team trips, award trips, and we found that they were highly, highly motivational. And we knew that intuitively, but we didn't know to the scale. And so the question is, why weren't we maximizing, weren't we leveraging that at a much more impactful manner in the way we communicate it, the way we um, articulate it, and quite frankly, leveraging it because it's a year-long uh, award, leveraging it all the way through, and leverage being a good thing, motivating, all the way through the end of the year. Even though the, you might have had a bad quarter, you had three quarters collectively that you could make it up. So that gave us some sense. We'd start with the communication. We then did an audit to understand what were, and it was the first time we'd really audited um, all of our Rewards Recognition, then went to our field and said, what engages you? Now, notice we did not say what motivates you. And I've learned that there is difference between that. But then that that we knew just by the design of the reward or the recognition. But what we didn't recognize was they were motivating people differently or engaging individuals differently. And the Ford Drive model gave us uh, laymen, I'll use that term, interest in behavioral science, but Behavioral science can be very broad, and we needed some tool to be able to condense and communicate what we were trying to achieve. And so that tool helped us engage or understand how we could categorize these different awards and to actually put them into um, one of these four categories to then understand what the impact was as we deployed them across our sales organization.
0: Yeah, and I remember you, you had mentioned that that team travel award was rated really high, and we knew that and, and as part of that work the the in the four drive model, what I found really interesting about that is that touched on all four of the drives so We have the drive to achieve and acquire, which is, you know, that key one. It's the one that most people think about when you think about the tools that you have to motivate employees. It's money, cash, things, all that kind of component. But the team award also had the drive to bond and belong, which is that we want to feel like we're in a group um, and have positive relationships with our teammates. And by being a district-level award or an area-level award, it allowed that those connections to happen. Then there's the drive to challenge and comprehend that, that learning, that challenge, the goals, different things. And obviously teams were focused in on achieving the goal in order to uh, win the award. And there were some um, significant challenges oftentimes in uh, district achieving that. And then the last one, which is that drive to defend and define in feeling that sense of purpose uh, and aligning with the organization those awards allowed Lily to have, which, I, which was surprising to me because the, it, it allowed uh, the teams to feel a sense of connection with Lily from a broader perspective. And uh, so I thought that was really an interesting concept. And, and as we looked at that and we looked at uh, how those impacted all of those drives, I thought that was really something that um, was unique in, in the way that that award was structured.
1: It was. I think the other piece is it, it helped um, educate our leadership that one award, such as this team travel, could pull on multiple different levers. We tend to try to think of things as uniformity that everyone's going to have. There's an A, there's a B. There's that Each one of these categories um, are equally the same for everyone, when in fact that's not true. But what we found with the team award was... Yes, there's a bond and belong, but some individuals didn't do it to bond and belong. It was relevant to the company, right? So I personally may not be so motivated to go on a trip with my business colleagues, but the company thought that was highly valuable because they wanted us to be much more collaborative in our work environment. And so it was it was a unique award, not only those receiving it, but also gave benefit back to the company. And I think that's one of the things when you were asking earlier why was the company engaged in this? They saw that the organization could gain some benefits, some priorities that they had to achieve while also um, impacting individuals. And in this case, it was this construct that we believe that collectively, that team of sales individuals could work better together than trying to compete against each other. And this award allowed that to occur.
2: James, one of the things you mentioned in the about the four drive model was that it was a tool to convince um, as as well as to categorize. But I, I was wondering if you could give uh, any tips to the podcast listeners about how to get senior leaders to buy into behavioral sciences.
1: Yeah, I think the I, I thought I, I thought a little bit about that and a bit of the journey. Um, I, I I think it's I, I I have to put it in construct or thinking that um, that I approach a lot of things. I, I come from a sales background, and um, I, I find that as a worthy profession. Um, and a good salesperson first tries to understand the need and then match the solution to the need. If you're trying to sell a solution that has no need, you're probably not a good salesperson. And so understanding what are the needs, what are the, in this case, what were the what were the business leaders trying to accomplish? In understanding that, and then demonstratively showing how the, the constructs and the understanding of behavioral science could be applied. Now, if we did not have a tool to apply it systematically and repeat, repeatedly, we were going to be at pro- we were going to have significant problems. Wow. Meaning, if we walked in with a, a, a series of twenty different, well-documented, studied um, behavior, um um behavioral um impact from various studies and just arbitrarily went through those the eyes would have glazed over and they're like great so glad you learned that they want to know application and that this created very succinctly give them an overview and we were able to say now we're not going to try to apply every one of these principles or these studies that we see as replicable, but here's your problem and here's how we can solve it. And what we saw our problem was, was we wanted going back to have leaders engage employees to drive better outcomes for our patients, particularly for our business. How do you do that? Well, in our world, we were, we were demonstratively using this achieve lever and it felt very old school by the time we exposed them that there are other levers to Engage employees to have better, to drive impacting their customers. And all of a sudden this door opened for our senior leaders to start having other levers than one that they felt was very exhausted. Cause really, achievement acquire is pay people more cash. And at some point in the sales world, pay me more becomes a mantra that is not, you can't defend that either in the healthcare space or just on your bottom line. You've got to be able to engage people beyond just paying them more cash.
0: Well, and James, you had talked in, we've talked about this in the past, where Lilly as an organization had made some strategic decisions to to shift. Uh, And you had mentioned that the reward recognition and incentives had not necessarily caught up with that change. And so... That was one of those, those needs, I think, that you identified with the senior leaders to say, hey, our reward recognition program hasn't, hasn't maintained the same level of, uh, or the same, uh, driven the same strategy that, uh, the organization is now moving to. Um, would you agree with that or is that, am I misstating?
1: No. Talk about. No, that goes back to that strategically the organization had moved to this value service change Yeah, simultaneously, uh, focusing, ultimately putting the customer, I mean, even our selling model went to a value-based selling where it used to be put the product in the center, do feature benefits, right? That's the classic sell. Here's the benefit. Here's the feature feature benefit. Sorry. We actually shifted that a patient in the center, okay. understanding the patient through the needs of, in our world, the healthcare provider and matching our different products or our different solutions back to the right patient so that it it became a a, a valuable conversation between our sales reps and a customer. So we had our selling model change, we had our strategic change, we even recognized within the healthcare business world that we were moving more to a team environment because our customers work as in the healthcare uh, environment today, work as a team, not as individual sole practices. And so there's these things going forward, but yet our incentive compensation program was still had not been updated since 2001 when it was developed.
2: Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's that's remarkable that uh, that you that you step back and by using the service value chain as uh, the service profit chain as a um, as a model to say how, you know, this is how we want to engage our our uh, customers and therefore how are we going to engage our employees so that they can be supportive and engaging our customers that brought the customer to the center and then this this behavioral layer gets applied to that with four drive model and and really uh enhanced uh i mean the results were were significant as, as i
1: recall right you, i mean you they you, have been you, you they, they things- have been very significant yeah. i think there's there's two key things that that um popped to mind one, our workforce by design um, is becoming much more diverse. many times we look at that in in classical standard you know categories of diversity um, but to me, those classic categories actually come out as really the diversity is, and that's where my comment very early on nurture versus uh, nature nurture we actually think very differently we're motivated differently for lots of various reasons and 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 the interesting component around behavioral science is done well it can pull out that across that diverse organization different motivators because that diversity is there the leader and this goes back to us as leaders having to engage employees i may not be well suited to engage a very diverse population. Well, but because I'm going to be, be biased to my own diverse motivators. And, and we had a systematic process. So it was everybody is going to be focused on achieve. Um, set a goal, let them achieve it, get paid more money. But across the organization, that's not always the case. It may be a fraction of their motivator, but they may, have, they may want to be bonded belong. They may want to be competency-driven, or they may want to fight for the patient and defend for the patient. That's why they're doing their job, or variation. And so this really gave that leadership an opportunity to realize that they had multiple levers that they could incorporate. And really, it came back to just recognizing we had a whole profile of rewards, all we had to do is start shifting them either in better communication or shifting them and say, you know what, some of these are truly just recognition reward or recognitions and not rewards in the sense of cash. Um, Master performers was one of those for our top uh, performing district managers over time.
2: So you dealt with diversity in, in the workforce more by their drive uh, their drives rather than, as you mentioned, of the classic classics like ethnicity or, or um, gender or age, you know, uh, th- those kinds of things. Uh, and you, and you still, uh, re- you still had great results.
1: Yeah. Well, Cause at the end of the day, I can't, I, I'm not, either I'm not smart enough or I can't in a way, um, same outcome. I put a program that says I have a diverse incentive compensation program based on the diversity profiles within our sales organization i I just can't see how that could be executed right right but what i can do is understand that if i build an incentive compensation program that has layers of different motivators to engage the employee then i don't have to worry about the 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 connectivity back to each and every profile that's sitting in a a sales force of three or four thousand people I just have to recognize that, and that's where the four drive model really enhanced our ability to, to, to systematically test the different rewards and categorize them. And, and many of them, as, as we talked earlier, such as the team award on the award trips, cut across all of them. Yeah. Some of them, a sales goal was really focused just on the achieved lever.
0: Right. So, James, Lily has taken behavioral science, and now used it across the organization in a, in a couple other ways. And so I wanted to just get a quick overview of some of the other ways. I know you were headed up uh, the fleet safety program and, and uh, brought that in there. I know that you had mentioned some patient adherence components. Where, how else has Lily used behavioral science inside the organization?
1: Um, currently there's a group within our training organization that is, uh, looking at the training content and how they're deploying, uh, the training and motivating and engaging individuals. Um, you mentioned the patient adherence, um, the two that I of course went deep on is the incentive compensation and our overall fleet safety. Um, I think with the patient adherence is really coming from our marketing organization, recognizing that in a, in a um, in a, uh, cost-constrained environment of healthcare with runaway cost, and we know that we're running against it. One of the arguments of of a biopharma space is that if patients who I've heard on average take only 50 to 60% of their medicines, um, if they were to sustain on the right medicine for longer periods of time, uh, then they would have better outcome with lower hospitalizations, lower, um, uh, casualties of whatever that disease state that they're involved in, um, and so the question is, can a biopharma company um, improve patient outcomes? And there, I think we have two or three different studies evaluating that. Now, that's work that Dan Ariely is involved with our marketing organization, um, and uh, and it may be tools. Uh, in, in reminder items or motivational or checklist or multiple different mechanisms, um, outside of the medicine itself. Um, the, the delivery device reminders, um, some of them may be electronic; some may be Bluetooth, um, apps on the phone, but, um, that's where I think the, the application of behavioral science is so broad. Um, and as I've become more and more a student of that, I actually see it being done to me, in lots of things, be it at the coffee house or the, the the airlines or even the checkout at the grocery line, and I'm and, and it's I'm not opposed to it. I just it's just becoming more aware, and it does work because I'm still drawn to it. The gas filling station, I mean, they all have these little nuances of uh, engaging us in different ways.
0: Yeah. Which brings me to another question then. So how how do you see behavioral science having been? You know, kind of brought into this through your work, How do you see behavioral science impacting uh, things in your personal life? or do you see it? I mean, are there any ways that you have applied behavioral science to help you in your personal life, or, as you said, just the uh, noticing that, hey, there are these nudges all over. And uh, sometimes it's good to be aware of the nudges. Not that the nudges are bad, but at least yeah. be aware of them.
2: Well, you're a husband and father, and uh, you know, active community member. And uh, are you are you applying any of these behavioral principles to your uh, to your personal life?
1: Uh, yes. So. Um, on uh, first on a personal, um, note, um, I, uh, hit a milestone birthday this past year in 2017. And so this time last year, I really evaluated, um, similar to what I'm doing each year, uh, through the week before the, uh, uh, the last week of the year, I always sit down and sort of look out what are some key things that I'm going to do differently. Um, and those are just piece, those are just goals, two or three personal. In my case, there was one I wanted to have, um, uh, a better fit body. Um, and I'd always classically worried about losing weight. Um, just like anybody else during the holiday season. I decided I'm going to shift that. I want to, I want to focus on, um, body fat. And so I did a lot of homework on what does that look like? And then I had put in certain milestones, um, that, um, that created um, motivation to me um, throughout the year. Um, I had a ski trip in March, so I was going to have stronger legs, and I put some 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 milestones on achieving certain goals on the 10-day ski trip miles down the hillside. Um, but to get there, I had to hire a personal trainer that I, could help me get there, and we worked through those. and And I wanted to work out four days a week. Two of those days with a trainer—that's accountability and then two of those days and myself. And um, those were just simple goals, but there are little triggers that I found myself having to um, put in place because I knew that by the end of February, it was really easy to walk away. For, as a parent, um, we've uh, we've set up some certain accountability um, items with our teenage kids when it comes to their finances. Um, and, be, um, they are given certain they had to first give us budgets. they then have accountability to um, manage those budgets on their own um, and um it's been interesting to be able to not only teach them some some life lessons but also be able to hold hold them accountable they They thought it was fun to get a each month to get a Bucket load of money, a hundred bucks a month, and they had to. But then they had to start breaking that down and to, to realize that these this wasn't just for games or movies or fun. This was really something very different. And so we've we've applied it into I'd say some daily task and and being able to de- demonstrate to them the the in the case of the kids, um, they were much more accountable. They were um, they were able to make some decisions in the case of um, uh, the learning. Um, they had to be competent in managing their money. They were able to defend their purchases, right? Yeah. So they were or acquire purchases. Um, they were able to choose if who they were if they were going out for a coffee or a hot chocolate, I guess, for the teenagers um, with friends. They were able to create that 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 ambiance without. Um, having to ask mom and dad for five bucks. And so there's, it's been interesting to sort of see some things that, um, it really helped us refine items that all of us do every single day. Um, um, and I think the, um, the interesting piece is it works. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it, and it, knowing yourself is critically important to know where you failed in the past. And so where, where are you going to create little triggers, to um, achieve whatever that goal is.
0: Yeah, I like the trigger conversation. So if you had one hint to give to the people listening to this of how they can use one behavioral science aspect or one hint around behavioral science to improve their life, what, what would that one hint be?
1: Hmm
0: tough question well oh,
1: that's a tough one yeah that's that's broad um, you don't need to answer it no actually the, the the reason i the reason I was thinking about it i this i think the 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 reason I'm pausing is because I'm going through all of the different types of items that they could go through and I'm like well that would work in this scenario that would work in this one not that one and then I'm thinking about the different the diverse audience and you know what I really if I had to give them a tip I, it, it was probably the thing that organized my thinking not only at Lily but also in my own life was I keep going back to this model and I know it's a tool it's not a, a, but it helps me and that is the four drive model get a hold of the four drive model and at least identify what are some of your motivators are you do, you, do and, and and then apply that to the different things that you're interested in. Um, and, and what I've found with that, that, and it's so easy, A, B, C, D. Um, and, and it's a tool to at least organize some things and it, it can be laid on to just about any aspect of, um, goals, aspirations, and then I think that at least helped me structure this breadth of a scientific field so that I didn't get overwhelmed. Um, did, and then, did,
0: did I, I ever just letting
1: did you, you ask more questions?
0: Did Did I ever give you the four drive assessment? Did Did we go through that together?
1: No, I don't think so. I, I know I went all the way back to the original study with uh, Noria and Lawrence and started researching that once I started uh, realizing that this was applicable. But I don't recall uh, actually taking the, uh, the 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 study.
0: I will have to. I will have to get you. Um, it's in beta, but I used it at I used it at Lilly with a number of your district managers, and so I thought I know. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, so I thought maybe you had taken that, but I. I'll get that to you, so you can actually get a a much better sense of the different drives that you find uh, to be most motivating. I, I gotta
2: right? I gotta say though, James, the fact that you went back to Lawrence and uh original work to discover it yourself, I think you now officially qualify as a geek. Mm. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, yeah. I am. <laughs> <laughs>
2: just, just admit it. You, you, you like
1: it. I do then, I do get passionate about things and, and can go pretty deep on on, on uh, uh, strange items. The, the fun thing is the information's at your fingertip and you just have to, and that's what I think when we start talking about motiv- why am I motivated to do this and not that? Um and I was I was really intrigued with that question. Um and then some of the things that um, well, um we don't want to do, but know we should do. That's really fascinating. And what do you do to, to trick yourself into it? And I I use that term with parentheses around it. Trigger is another one, but um, it it works for something different for me. It's accountability. If I have somebody waiting for me at the gym, um, I can't let that person down. um, And and so I show up.
0: Yeah. Well, James, I, I just appreciate always your, uh, questions because you have raised a number of really good questions as we, yes. um, in, in all of the years that we've worked together in various different things, I always, always enjoy the way that you think. Cause you think about things in a very um, big picture yet very application kind of focus. And so it's a really nice mix of those two that you bring to the table. And I'm always really appreciative when, when we talk because You bring up some really interesting stuff. I remember some on on the fleet safety and you're talking about how we can use loss inversion, um, various different pieces on that.
2: So. So the conversation meandered a bit until James brought us back to something that he wished we had talked about earlier. And that's where we pick up the conversation now.
1: When we talk about the success of, I think that would have been the the one element of how do you know if it worked or not? And, um, and, and I think the um on each one of those components, so two that I think are really powerful. One is on the incentive items. Um we've had seven consecutive I think there's two levels of um of success that we can attribute uh back to behavioral science. One is we've had seven consecutive years at Lelly of exceeding business plans results. I think that's one. I think the in challenging years, these were not given. This was the seven years that we achieved results. Uh, The second is when we did an audit in 2015. um, We had 85 percent of the employees fully comprehend their incentive compensation program.
0: Which was and I think which was up from hugely was that right?
1: Yes. Yes. Massive. And so I think how we were communicating, and I think, you know, when, when we say what's the most important thing is understanding, um, is critical. In fact, I remember what Alex Azar said. Um, he goes, you know, I don't give a damn if people quote unquote say they're motivated. I want them to understand and create action. And I thought that was a really intriguing comment because what he was really saying is people don't understand what motivates them. So I don't care if someone articulates, and I know Kurt, you and I talked about this. One of the worst questions we could ask is, "Are you motivated by this?" It's irrelevant because I may or may not be at the moment. I answer the question. Um, The question is, "Are you creating action?" And I think that was that. That's probably one of the biggest learnings I've had with um, the application is um, identifying, asking someone, "Are they motivated?" is very different than observing their behaviors, which is, to me, more important um, well, we've had, than we've had the, the their opinion.
0: Yeah, we've had that conversation about how people don't understand their own motivations, right? If they understood what motivates them, then anytime they set a, a powerful goal that they want to achieve, which many people do, but yet still end up failing – oftentimes because they they don't really know what are the motivators and what are those things that are going to get them um, past all the hurdles that they're going to have to chase in order to, to reach
1: yeah, that. Or level. derail them and so forth. So I think one was the, the – the that. so, you know, what were the outcomes? And then on the fleet safety, having a a, a program where we got a 35% reduction in collisions. I mean, 35% reduction, wow. two, three – 2016 versus Q3 2017 and it, it's not just a correlation we did a direct causation um, The, the, the in, but we interrupted them um, with, and I think so we did two things that I think were really intriguing one when talking to Dan Ariely um, when I asked him through behavioral science how do we stop people from texting and driving he said you don't you interrupt that behavior because you can't not it's stupid, and you need to stop it as fast as possible. And this re, this supports some of his um, beliefs that at some point, technology or uh, interference with one's behavior because it's destructive needs to happen, right? You, you can't modify or adjust it or let them choose to change. And I think that was his, His you got to stop it. And so we did use technology to stop the texting and driving. But one of the more interesting ones was loss avoidance. And that was... Everyone was immediately rewarded. XM Radio. With our buying power, we got it down to eleven dollars per person per month, which is pretty cheap. And as long as they stayed within their driving saving, uh, we called it um, uh, point system, right? So they had to stay at four points or lower, and they were able to keep um, XM. If you went over that, you we um, turned XM off, and you were Uh, telemetrics, which is tracking your driving patterns, is turned on. Well, what was fascinating is when we started the program, um, historically, we've always had around 200, 220 people um, with five points or higher across our fleet. And and some people would drop off, other people go in. It was a very fluid, different people, but the numbers were pretty constant. Since we've rolled this out over the last five months, we're now down um, because points drop over time. But no one's going back on. And so we're down to like 56 people with greater than five points. Yeah. So not only did we interrupt and stop the, the texting and driving, the distracted driving, which is broader than texting and driving, we stopped that. But then we also, with this, through this loss avoidance, and, and it was fascinating, um, Kurt, when I came back to you and said, do you think this is going to work? Your comment was... Loss avoidance is one of the one of the most powerful motivators. Regardless if it's a big item or a small item, when people have something, they want to hold on to it. Yeah, they just want to know what 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 do they have to do to not lose it. And we articulated that, and we're down from running 200 220 MVR points five or greater down to 56. In fact, my safety team came over to me just about a month ago and said, "Do you think our data's right?" <laughs> I said, "Well, is it the same data you're?" is it the same data you've been polling for the last two or three years? They said, yeah, but they've never seen this, this drop. And I said, well, remember this loss of Williams was intentionally um, put into place to create that behavior that we don't want people in that unsafe um, area because what we correlated with about 85% uh, um, the predictive model was with people with five points or higher, they had an 85% Chance. Now we didn't do this. This is actually with a five-year study from Virginia Tech Technology Institute. They created this, and I would not call. I called it a probability model. They kept calling it a predictive model. Um, I just that just sounded too too accurate, predictive. Right. After we monitored in 2015, it was 85% predictive. I was like, you and they said, look, this is. They said, look, this is the same data that insurance companies use. They're not in business to go out of business or out of not be profitable, and so the the it was truly predictive at who's going to be in the accidents, wow, and the that's... characteristics of those people, right? And so that five points or greater um, was really lining up, and so we had to figure out how to get people below that five points and giving giving them a, a reward for staying under it seems to work.
2: Well, it's, 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 it's a combination.
0: It's that combination. And I remember us co- having those conversations about how do we, how do we implement this? What is the right type of a reward and what, what can be used from a loss avoidance perspective? I had not heard the results of that though. So that's fantastic going down from over 200 to just roughly over 50.
2: That's Ooh. tremendous. Yeah.
0: Congratulations. <laughs>
2: Um, no and,
1: and and this is this and it, it's really been interesting you know it's this combination of technology it's a combination of reward recognition um it's changing the behaviors and this was this was probably the uh the most the most visual um program that we've done thus far um because it was uh it felt really really personal to, to our sales force, you're in your car and you have a system in your car now that shuts down your phone when, except for phone calls, uh, when you're moving and, um, it felt like really invasive. So there was a lot of negativity on this. So, um, it, and it was critically important that, um, we got results and it was, um, quite frankly, it was uh, thrilling, um, yeah. to, to see a 35% drop in our collision rate.
0: Yeah, where well, to go? And that's so you you know you're you're saving lives, right? I mean that that's what this comes down to is is you're impacting people's livelihoods and saving lives with it. And yes, it was invasive. We had we had to we got long and hard on how do you communicate this and how do you roll this out to make sure that people were accepting of it and various different pieces. But the the results of it, that's fantastic, James. I didn't realize that
1: it, 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 it's been so those you're asking, Tim, and I think probably the outcome of this, if I had to just quickly is, is in both cases, we've had some strong outcomes that were very powerful.
0: And so with that, I think we're kind of wrapping up here with our time, but we always we have to talk about music.
2: Have to. <laughs> we have to talk about music, James. So so the question is today, what is your theme song today?
1: My theme song today. Oh boy! I've got teenagers, and I was listening to something. Our, like
0: All of our interviewees, uh, all of our podcast guests, they always they always have trouble kind of formulating this. So,
1: well, it was funny because I I've got teenagers, and um, I was listening to some music um, uh, last night, um, uh, doing some reading, and my wife came over to me and said, "Seriously." you're listening to that. I said, well, the kids are listening to it. And I still like it. Um, I wouldn't call it my theme song cause I don't think I could repeat it. Um, but, um, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to move. I, you know what, it, to me, um, uh, boy, you know, I've got to, I I'm listening to a lot of Christmas stuff right now. And and I think that I, I like a lot of instrumental, um, I going to go with a band um, or a, a group, and that's platonics. Um, okay. And I just like the instrumental music um, for this time of season, and um, it's got a lot of depth to it. Um, cool. But but, um, but it, it, I, I listen to a lot of genre, and, and I think yeah. some of the stuff that uh, I listen to when I'm teenagers, I don't believe I could repeat um, <laughs> some of the stuff that goes on there.
0: Who is, so who's the band? What what is it that that Platonic?
1: Uh, the the, the platonics?
0: Okay. I've not heard uh,
1: of uh, it's a it's a uh, uh, acoustic um, vocal group. Okay,
0: check I will them, well, check them will, out.
1: They're outstanding.
0: We will we will get that information. We'll put it in the show notes, and people can link to it when they if they want to want to hear some of the uh, that that type of music. So that'll be great. So it's, James, uh, it, no,
1: it's um, it, it's 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 uh, it's they 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 have a lot of uh, seasonal genre, but I, it's. In fact, my I guess I listen to it a lot because my 15 year old son, we were up last night cleaning the kitchen, and um, he goes, "Is that Petronix?" And I'm like, "You actually know them?" She goes, "Well, yeah, you play them enough." So um, I guess I do have spillover effect on the kids too.
0: <laughs> it's amazing what we have on on. What we don 't know actually impacts our kids, and uh-uh. what we yeah. sometimes think does is not always the, but
1: but i but you know. I will tell you i 've been banned from playing too much Adele so <laughs> apparently the last couple of years the, the family uh, ban Adele? She has such uh, a whole- apparently when you hear it nonstop for every time they get in the car, um hello comes on and uh I, I got. I have a. I have a chorus of four people in the car saying, "Turn it off." <laughs> my 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 Adele days are limited. Um, I, I, so, if you ever wonder what James is listening to when he's driving by himself, yes, yeah. I still go to Adele, but apparently, I've overdone it.
0: <laughs> the difference between uh, social James and private James. There yes. we go. So, yes, it
1: would right. be Adele. I yeah yeah.
0: Well. No. Well, James, I wanna just say thank you. We really appreciate this very informative stuff, and so we we appreciate
2: that. So Thanks, thank you. For, yeah, thank you for your time, James.
1: Okay. Well happy happy new year to both of you. All
2: thank right. you.
0: Welcome to our grooving session. This is where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral grooves interview. Or just have a free-flowing discussion on some topics that we want to talk about. So,
2: Didn't go into the crazy mind thing today. You you (laughs) talked about that with me last time.
0: I learned this is one of those things. People can change. Or I just didn't read the script right. Anyway, uh, so Tim, impressions of our
2: talk with James Brewer. Monet versus Michelangelo, the speed round question that he thought so much about, and I just love how he had this perfect rationale. It was very quick. It actually, this this was a quick speed round question, and it surprised me that you could ask Monet versus Michelangelo and get a quick answer. And he said it was about color, and and uh, you know spoke effusively about about Monet, and I thought, wow, that was that was kind of cool. Uh,
0: it, James is. Uh a unique individual in the way that he processes information. It's one of the things that I have always very much appreciated about him. Uh, He, he takes a different view and I think that view is actually a really positive one uh, and a really insightful one and sometimes a very enlightening and fun one. And I think you nailed it on the head. You know, he had a specific rationale as to why within a matter of seconds,
2: and it was well thought out and well spoken much like the way Adele is completely (laughs) out of bounds with the rest of his family because he's overplayed her. I thought, and again, very quick, you know, he was right there with it. Yeah. That was was pretty cool.
0: I could see where Adele would be, uh, one of those
2: factors. I'm being, I'm being somewhat sarcastic. Yes, Uh, I know, but, uh, but I have to, I have to admit that, uh, I, I thought the discussion about the four drive model, the Lawrence and Naria model was really great. And the work that the two of you have done, uh, was uh, i mean you you 've used this model at length, and it was a really good discussion um, what wh- What did you think about that that Kurt do you feel like it sort of did some of the work that you guys have done together justice
0: yeah i think I think the one thing that I want to reiterate is you know we started using the four drive model James and I, typically where we really focused it in on the rewards component within the organization and it has some great aspects within that. Uh, around rewards and how you structure an incentive compensation plans and how you build the other factors that go into those. What has been, I think, really, I think, something that I'm proud of, uh, and maybe it didn't come out as much, is that the four-drive model has gone and grown beyond just the incentive component within Lilly. Well, and how, how you're using it? How, or, how it's being or, used inside the organization. Oh, okay. And so uh, we have done management training sessions around the four-drive model so that district managers uh, understand how they can apply the different drives, the different motivational drives uh, with their team. So that they're not always having to think about well, how do I pay this person more or get them more money, but how do we how do we work with improving you know somebody to uh, be motivated around their bonding component? How do we put challenges out there for people that are going to be something that is going to motivate them? How do we align people's individual uh, passions with the organization, so that they have that that drive to defend and feel like they are a tribe, and that this is something that they feel worthwhile in defending. And so that has been uh, across the board from that, but also in some work around patient adherence, and also in work around fleet safety, and you know the list goes on. So it has taken on a much broader context than just within. Uh, the reward and recognition field, uh, and I think that's really powerful.
2: So, as a model, the four drive model has been a very powerful tool for 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 w- what what problems you've tried to solve. It sounds like it's been a very effective tool.
0: It, you know, and I'm I'm typically agnostic around which models I, I'll use. Whichever model works. Uh, what I find fascinating about the four drive model is that it it has its power because it's simple. So most models you want to be relatively simple from an application perspective, right? Uh, The the more complex they get, the various different things, the harder they are to actually implement in a manner that is going to have some actual recourse within an organization. Um, Yet it its simplicity also belays you know this element of sophistication with it that provides that says yes it, it. it's simple, yet it has these components that people go, yeah. I think about that, and that makes sense. Um, we, we are human. I, I, I understand that element, that that drive to bond, that uh, component there. So,
2: yeah, that is really cool. Uh, I think that that is that is really cool, and I I get where you're coming from on sort of being agnostic. That use the right tool for the right. Problem like you you, do, you know just because you have a screwdriver and you really like the screwdriver doesn't mean that that's going to be do a good job of of putting the pictures up on the wall you know you, screwdrivers are great for pictures on the <laughs> wall. know uh, what you're talking about you turn it around and it's a hammer and you got a screw and all, uh, you're absolutely
0: you're absolutely right the the factor is is that you use the tool that is best fit for the job and in some organizations that's the four drive model given that component uh, in others it brings in a different motivational model or different elements of behavioral science and so uh don't get don't get married to one particular uh way of looking at the world. You need to look at it from a multitude of different perspectives.
2: One of my favorite things that, that James said, uh, which is something that you and I have done a lot of work in is don't ask your sales reps if they want more cash. <laughs> yeah.
0: Because what's the answer going to be?
2: <laughs> we know the answer. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> of course,
0: everybody that you, it doesn't even have to be salespeople. It can be yeah, I mean, line workers. It can be anybody. If you ask them,
2: hey, would you like more money? The answer is always yes, it kind of has to be our, our brains would be you know working sideways if the answer wasn't yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that our motivation is actually derived from that preference yes and
0: and the key piece there is is understanding that people do ask those questions inside organizations, uh, and oftentimes the the results that they get. Uh, because they implement on that that question, yeah. right they implement on the answers that they get, and the results that they get aren 't what they expected
2: um, and, and james 's approach was to not ask what motivates you but what engages you and and I thought that that was a that was a a subtle but important difference to try to talk about what are the things that engage you in your job on on a broader level right and we did it in a really
0: interesting way too, so we looked at this from uh both an interview perspective as well as in surveys and a variety of other things, but we asked it in a multitude of ways. Um, we looked we did past what mo- motor, you know what engaged you in the past, what was the most engaging uh, time that you had uh, in this job? Uh, we asked about future, you know what do you think is going to engage you moving forward in the future? Uh, and we looked at some other ways of doing that, but when you take all of that together, what you get is i think a, a much richer perspective on what is actually engaging.
2: How do people typically answer the what will engage you in the future? How, what what what's the what's the the kind of responses that you saw to that question?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question and uh, you know again answers on any one individual are going to be across the board from any other individual. There are
2: were there some overarching
0: themes? There were, and I'm trying to remember back and I think in in, across the board, there's a couple of different things. Obviously, money rewards those types of things. People talk about they they bring up, and again, this gets into some of it might be priming, and some of it might be you know just what they know. Um, but they will talk about those big recognition trips, the president's council. The uh, for for Lily, it was their achievement trips and various different things because those are so vivid in their memory and they have such a powerful component. Money comes up as as one of those factors too sure. again it 's one of those different pieces um, you know and the the interesting thing in pharmaceutical and this is across the board in in all of the work that i 've done with pharmaceutical or even med device companies uh, there is a subset of individuals who are talking about working with patients and seeing the impact that they have on patients the
2: virtuous aspect of the job the
0: virtuous aspect of the job, and it comes back into. You know, I, I you hear stories. You hear stories of, you know, my my mother has diabetes, and I've seen what it's done to her, and mm-hmm. so I want to, you know, take that. Or my sister had Parkinson's, and so I want to, you know, know and and, and help people in that situation because they have some some real world experience or empathy around that.
2: Yeah, and uh, in in some of the work that you and I have done together, uh, Kurt, with pharmaceutical reps. Uh- i 'm surprised that um, of course it 's prevalent that that virtuous calling, if you will that that uh, connection to the work on this virtuous level is prevalent, but it wasn 't universal no and and that was a surprise to me i no. I anticipated that if you 're going to get into um being a drug sales guy or uh, or you 're going to be promoting medical devices that you really love the the product you know that you're really but not everybody is no and i think some people go
0: into it because it's a sales job and it can be a highly lucrative sales job uh and so people go in for a variety of reasons it's like uh, again you look at that i think you could take any industry you could take any role and you are going to have some people who go into it because a uh they love the impact that it has accountants yeah right Uh, And and they're going to uh, really glom on to what it is about the job that is meaningful and impactful and purposeful and all of those factors. And other people are going to look at it as just a job. And sometimes I think that happens because we don't understand the job when we're applying for it. uh, And we don't understand what it actually implies. And when we get in there... It's not exactly what we wanted, but it's paying well, and so we just stick with it or whatever that would be and other times, I think it is actually purposely sought after they 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 do understand it, and so yeah. I think there's that difference,
2: yeah did you have any other observations that you uh, wanted to share
0: i was just very happy james is typically very 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 long-winded <laughs> he's going to love that when he listens he knows <laughs> this we've talked about this um, and and he he did a really good job he was of, great of, he was great of not doing that i i will tell and i think i've told him so when he listens if i haven't uh here you go james uh but i whenever he would call I would I would answer it if I knew I had an hour. Uh, if I knew I had less than an hour, I would I would politely leave the phone uh, in in uh, voicemail mode and call him back when I did have an hour, even if it was just for a simple question. The conversation would is too for a full hour.
2: Well, but it's clear uh, your affection for him is 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 strong. You you guys have it. You you guys have a great relationship. Yeah, he's so. a good guy. So, okay, well, let's talk music. Oh, okay. We're, we're going to do music. Oh. What, what is, okay, well, we don't have to. No, music is good. We don't Music have to. is good. Okay. So uh, what are you listening to these days?
0: So I have been listening to a multitude of different things. Wow. Of well, I always do. You know that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. That's, but the, 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 the band that I'm, I'm liking a lot is um, Down Like Silver really strange band name. Down like Silver. Yeah. Okay. Um love that. And so uh but again they are uh in the in the mode of uh, Angus and Julia Stone uh have a great like you know male female uh singer within it uh, and uh, just a, you know the the haunting kind of music for me and so I, I really like that. And then I will go back and I, I listen to my um uh, my punk Husker do uh, yeah, uh, components yeah. that I, I I'm, I'm listening to and getting excited uh, about because Bob mold is going to be playing. Uh, we're close to the super bowl here in Minneapolis that as we're doing this and he's going to be playing at down on Nicollet Avenue. And I'm thinking of going and seeing yeah. Bob mold. Uh, he still rocks it out? Yeah, he does. Absolutely. So, absolutely. So there you go. Very different on the on the on the genres.
2: That's great. You always listen to a, a wide diversity though. Yeah. That that's pretty cool. And so, you? Well, so uh, you you had mentioned uh, Angus and, and Julia Stone uh, uh in a previous podcast and it really got me like thinking well why don't i know anything about these guys and you, they're you, from australia that's why well they and so when you told this story about how how um they opened the concert with uh with trumpet and i was like oh this is fascinating so i started listening to them and really dig their sound and when we were just talking about this they they do remind me a little bit of iron and wine yeah. but uh but completely their own sound. Yes. Uh, I, I don't know who's producing them, but they've got a great sound, and I really I really like it. So I've been listening to them. And um, last night I was out, and, and I, I love local music, so I'm yes. going to promote the local music scene. Um, a buddy of mine, uh, Nikki Pepper, uh, that's N-I-C-I. Uh, Nikki and I C I Pepper E R. Uh, uh, E-R. and so uh, she was she was playing last night um, with with uh, um, another friend on uh, percussion and um, gosh if you just you just got to check out Nikki Pepper because she's got a great voice she's a tremendous guitarist okay a good songwriter and um, she just she just really knows how to she's she's a, a very natural singer and she does it she sings in a way that is completely convincing. And and just uh, just kind of wins you. It just wins me over, really, when I just listen to her. She's just really convincing and authentic Fantastic. in the way that she sings. So, Nikki Pepper. Nikki Pepper. Yeah, I'll keep an eye out. So,
0: yeah. and with that, uh, please, people, if you uh, find this at all interesting. Give us some stars. We we realize we haven't asked that before, so we're we're making an ask. If you uh, like this, please uh, rate us with five stars or four stars. If you're going three or two or one, you know, send us an email. Tell us what you don't like about it because we want to we want to make this better and and give you guys what you want. But as always, uh, listen to our podcast on wherever you listen to your podcasts: Podbean, Apple, whatever it would be. Have
2: a great day. Be groovy.